You are listening to the Hill Country Bible Church Podcast. To learn more about Hill Country Bible Church, including our gathering times, visit us online at hcbc.com. Please enjoy today's message. What's up, everybody? Good to see you today. For those of you at our Steiner Ranch location, I want to welcome you in, or maybe you're watching one of the, at one of the venues, part of our online family. However you're tuning in, we're glad you're with us today on the shared journey. Last week, Pastor Tim kicked off a series called Difference Maker, because Jesus rose from the, the grave. He gives us a new life in him. He becomes the difference maker, and he wants to use people like you and me to make a difference in the world in which we live. So we're going to be looking at beginning today over the next four weeks, critical areas in our city and in our culture where God would invite us to partner with him to make a difference. We'll be looking at unplanned pregnancy, poverty and homelessness. We'll also be looking at um, neighboring. And then today we'll be talking about making a difference in the area of human trafficking. Today's subject matter is a very heavy subject. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, if we could begin, let's begin uh, with prayer. If you don't mind, let's pray together. Father, we humble ourselves before you right now, and we recognize that all around the world right now, there's a cry rising up, voices, uh, millions of them, who are entrapped and enslaved, and they're calling out for help. And you are the God who hears. You are the God who sees. You are the God who moves your people to partner with you. And so our prayer today, help us to hear you moving us into difference-making mode. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Amen and amen. If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 1. If ever there was like an easy, we all get to be rock stars and turning to your Bible, this is that moment. It's like open the cover, first chapter, first you know, book, first page. So anyone can do it. Hopefully you can find it. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, just go to BibleGateway.com and type in, you know, Genesis chapter 1. What we're going to do today is we're going to survey the Scripture. So we're going to begin at the beginning of the Bible with the first chapter. But then we're going to end our survey at the end of the Bible in the last chapter. So for the next 90 minutes, we're going to study 35 different... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but we are actually going to survey the biblical story with an eye toward God just calling us into awareness and action in the area of human trafficking. So as we begin today, um, by show of hands, how many of you have ever heard of the song, It's a Small World? Can I see your hands? You ever heard the song? Right? You know, it's a small world after all, right? It's a small, small world. Good job, everybody. And thank you, Walt Disney. It's a small world. But here's the question. Is it really? Because the UN just got released the current estimates. Right now, there are 7.9 billion people on our planet. And yes, that is billions with a B, 7.9 billion people. Now, just imagine with me for a moment if each of those 7.9 billion people had, let's say, four problems. Add that up. What do you got? You got 31.6 billion problems. Some of you are like, four problems? How do you get four problems? Lucky dog. I feel more like Jay-Z. I got 99 problems. But you get 7.9 billion people. If we all just had like four problems, that's 31.6 billion problems. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of problems. So the question becomes, how can you and me and little old us ever think that we could make any kind of difference in such a big world with so many big problems? I believe the comedian Stephen Wright nailed it. He said, it's a small world, but I wouldn't want to paint it. 
Truth is, it's a really big world with really big problems. And the problem we're looking at today is a really, really big one. We're talking today about human trafficking. And when you hear the word trafficking, for many of us, what comes to mind, I think rush hour. But human trafficking, we're talking about the lived experience of human beings. One of our partners is called Engage Together, and they do a great job putting together curriculum to, to train and make us aware of the issues involving human trafficking. It's one of our partners that we're working with in our small group curriculum that you can do here at um, Hill Country. And so they put together a definition, summarizes a good understanding of what we're talking about here. So when we say human trafficking, here's what we're talking about. Their definition is modern-day slavery, a multi-billion dollar industry enslaving over 40 million people around the world. People are trafficked for the purposes of sexual exploitation, forced labor or services, or organ sales. So what are we talking about? We're talking first about modern day slavery. This is modern slavery. We're talking about people have had their agency over their own human body taken away through force, fraud, or coercion. Second thing we're learning is this is a multi-billion dollar industry. Some estimates say it's up to $150 billion a year. It's a lot of money. People are trafficked for three major purposes, sexual exploitation, forced labor services, and organ sales. And if you look at it proportionally, labor and forced services is the largest piece of that, sexual exploitation, and then on down to organ sales. And of course, we're talking about 40 million people. How do you get your mind around 40 million people? Well, picture for a moment New York City. It's a lot of people, huh? It's a pretty cool shot, by the way. That's a God's eye view of New York City. Now, picture New York City three times over, all enslaved. That's the scope of the problem we're talking about. Some 40 million people, all captives. That is a big problem. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ can make a big difference in this big problem, and he wants to use regular people like you and me to be difference makers on this big problem. But there are a couple things, a couple confessions we got to put out there. First confession, confession number one, I am no expert when it comes to human trafficking. I'm a fellow learner, just like you. Confession number two is I can't make the world different in and of myself. I don't have any power in myself to make the world different. If I had power like that, I would have a full head of beautiful hair. So in and of ourselves, we don't have the power to make anything different. But Jesus has the power. He's the difference maker. And all he wants is to use people like you and me so that we can make a difference. Somebody once said that anyone who thinks they're too small to make a difference has never tried to fall asleep with a mosquito in the room. You don't have to be a big shot doing big things to make a big difference. You just need a big God. And last week we learned that the risen Christ, Jesus, he is the difference maker. And he brings new life to us so that we, in the power of his spirit, can go out and make a difference just like him. We can bring his love to other people. Where does it all begin? We're going to start with this thought today. So if you're a note taker, you want to write this down. Here's our, our big thought. Difference makers engage overlooked people as Jesus does. That's what we do. We engage overlooked people the way that Jesus would engage them. So here's the question. How did Jesus go about making a difference in the lives of people? Because if you read through the scriptures, the Bible records Jesus engaging people at the level of crowds on 15 different occasions. So to make a difference, Jesus had people in groups and crowds. Yeah, 15 different times. However, 
The Gospels show Jesus engaging in one-on-one conversations with people 40 different times. So yes, there's a time for crowds and groups, absolutely. But the emphasis, the accent for Jesus is individuals, personally, one at a time. Where do you begin? Well, I believe we gotta start where Jesus starts, and it all starts with biblical vision. 40 different times in the New Testament, you see these two words together, 40 times. Jesus saw. His starting point in making a difference in the lives of people is he saw. He saw overlooked people, people that no one else was seeing. He was able to see them. Kind of like that student on the margins that no one pays attention to, or that neighbor, no cars ever go to their house. He saw people no one else was seeing. So making a difference like Jesus begins with seeing what Jesus saw. He looked out at the world. He saw its people and its problems with biblical vision. And my prayer for us is just that God would train our eyes to look in our everyday already life and see what Jesus sees. Engage people, care for people just like Jesus did. How did he do it? He did it personally. A while ago, the New York Times reported a real tragedy. The New Orleans Recreation Department celebrated their first summer in years without a drowning. So they decided to celebrate by having a pool party. So they had about 200 guests had gathered together for the pool party. And among the guests were about 100 trained lifeguards. Well, as the party was winding down and the four on-duty lifeguards were clearing away the pool area, they were horrified to discover the body of a fully dressed man floating face down at the end of the pool. Jerome Moody, 31-year-old man, drowned in a pool while being surrounded by over 100 trained lifeguards who were so busy celebrating their own success that they never even noticed him. Here's a question. Could that be true of us? That we're so busy celebrating our own success that we don't even notice people drowning in despair and dysfunction and desperation all among us. During last week's message when Pastor Tim was speaking, a question occurred to me. I wrote it down. I've been wrestling with it ever since. Here's the question. Am I making a difference or am I faking a difference? For me, often when I just, you know, see underserved, overlooked people, man, I want to help out. So I give them some money, give them a gift card, send some money, fire off a prayer, you know, thoughts, wishes, sending love, hugs, good vibes, and that's, that's good stuff. But I've discovered that God didn't call me to do good stuff. God called me to do Jesus type of stuff. And the Jesus type of stuff looks more like interpersonal, looks like one-on-one, looks like investing my life in the lives of other people. And so I just don't know about anybody else. I know for me, I want to do the work to be a difference maker. I don't want to get stuck being a difference faker. And it all goes back to just seeing overlooked people the way Jesus does. So as we move through the biblical narrative, we're going to see three statements that carry us through the biblical narrative. And the first statement is from Genesis chapter 1. We'll get there in just a moment. We're almost there. The first statement is this. Everyone has infinite worth as God's image bearer. Every one has infinite worth as God's image bearer. So here's an honest question. How do you view people? Like when you see people, when you notice them, 
What do you see? Because the reality is how I view people determines how I treat people. Here's a little newsflash. There really are only two places from which we can derive our vision for anything. One is culture. The second is scripture. We can either accept the authority of culture around us and the stories that it tells us to shape our vision and action in this world, or we could accept the authority of Scripture and the story that it invites us into to let it shape our vision and our action in this world. The truth is, guys, you can't have both at the same time in the same way. They're mutually exclusive. So the question then becomes, how does our culture view people? Answer, so look at how people are treated. Marketers treat people like consumers to be manipulated. Politicians treat people like voters to be courted. And we fall for it every time. Social media platforms treat people like clickbait to be influenced. Don't forget to like, subscribe, smash the button. I mean, it's just from every corner of our culture, people are treated as commodities, as objects as causes, as means to someone else's end. What are we talking about? Here's what we're talking about. Human trafficking is about human beings. And Jesus, the ultimate difference maker, viewed human beings through a biblical vision. What does the biblical vision look like? It comes right out of Genesis chapter 1. And so here's what Genesis 1 says. On the day God created human beings, the sixth day of creation, God says this, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Notice that word image occurs a few times right there, you know, three different times. Verse 26, verse 27, verse 27. Human beings are the only creatures in all of God's creation said to bear the image of the creator. Theological term that's used for that, a Latin term, imago Dei. We are all made in the image of God. Verse 27, you notice the word created occurs there three times. This verb coming out of the original language refers to the intentional act of bringing something into being. How'd you get here today? Oh, a car. No, 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 no. How'd you get here? You got here into this world through an intentional act of God to bring you into being. Some of you have been told or treated like you're an accident, but you aren't an accident. You are the result of the intentional act of God to bring you into Your parents may not have planned you, but God did. You say, well, how do I know that God even has a purpose for me? Well, great question. There's a test that you can take. In fact, we could take it together. It's called the two-finger test. Go ahead, everybody, show me two fingers. Go ahead, show me these two fingers. Put them up. Show me two fingers. Not that one, sir. We're in church. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Two finger test. Now take these two fingers and just put them right here on the side of your neck. Go ahead. If you feel anything pulsating, then guess what? God has a purpose for you. It ain't over. Like, like God has a purpose for you. And as an image bearer, what does it mean for God to have a purpose for me? Two things right out of Genesis. The first purpose is relationship with God. God made you, brought you into this world so that you might know him, so that you might love him, 
that you might walk with him every day. In fact, that's what we see in Genesis chapter one and two. If you ever wonder, what, is the, what does God want from me? Genesis one and two. To know him, love him, and walk with him every day. That's, that's the first purpose. But the second purpose is partnership with God. Not just relationship, but also partnership. I don't know if you noticed that, but in verse 27, 26, God has humans rule over the animals. Verse 28, to subdue all of creation. In other words, God gave human beings, his image bearers, the privilege and the responsibility to partner with him to manage his creation, to reflect his loving, wise rule out into creation, which means this, we were meant, we were made to rule and not be ruled over. We were only to be ruled over by God and God alone and no other thing, no other one. So let's just stop for a moment and just, let's do an awesome pause. How awesome is that, that you were made in the image of God? Next time you shave or look in the mirror, you are locking eyes with a person who is made in the image of God. You have infinite dignity, worth, and value. You may not feel like it. Others might not treat you like it, but it's true. And as soon as you start believing it, you're going to start feeling like it. We have the awesome privilege of not only bearing God's image, but fulfilling God's purpose in this world, which is greater than a job, a career, okay, it's greater than all of that. So the good news is God's image bears your dignity, your value, your worth, they come from God, which means regardless of your gender, regardless of your bank account, regardless of your body type, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your education level, regardless of your physical or mental capacity or lack thereof, you were made in the image of God and your value is infinite, your worth is infinite. The Bible's vision for every human being is that you bear the image of the creator. So wow, man, you're like really beating this drum. I am beating this drum because this is revolutionary. You have to understand, when Genesis was written, in the ancient Near East, people were not viewed as inherently valuable or even equal. In the ancient Near East, your value was based 100% on your ability to produce, whether it be for the profit or the pleasure of those who wield the power. Sound familiar to anyone? The more things change, the more they stay the same. Sounds familiar to us. So the powerless end up being exploited by the powerful, which is contrary to the biblical vision. The biblical vision begins with everyone. Everyone has infinite worth as God's image bearer. But then number two, as we move along, no one, statement number two, no one is to be reduced to inferiority or captivity to another. No one. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we see the world that God intended. I think we could all agree, this world is not what it was meant to be. You want to see what that world looks like? Go to the end of Genesis 2. Those first two chapters, that's the world that God intended. It's amazing. you got people walking with God. Amazing. People loving and serving each other. People caring for creation together as equals. What an amazing world. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Then... Genesis chapter 3, dum, 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 dum. it all goes wrong. Our first, the first humans, our primary parents, they dethroned God and enthroned self. 
And they opened up the door, allowing sin and evil and death into God's good creation. And it took the center of reality now, instead of a God-centered reality, we now have self-centered reality. And the human heart has become warped in two very profound ways. The first way is we now have become self-referential. It's all about me. And you're saying it's all about you. So there's a problem. We're all self-referential now. It's part of not being God-centered, but self-centered. We're all self-centered. That's a problem. Where'd that come from? It comes from rebellion, rejecting God's leadership in our lives. That's why you don't have to raise a child to say mine. They do it naturally, right out of the gate. Man, they're fighting for toys immediately. And you don't have to take a course on how to do that. So we'll become self-referential. But the second thing is we become utilitarian. What do you mean? We value things based on the usefulness to us. Does this benefit me? Oh, it's got value. It doesn't benefit me. I don't need this. So we become utilitarian. And so this plays out over the long march of history in what historians and philosophers have reduced to the statement, man's inhumanity to man. And one of the main ways that humans have left God's perfect creation is in the reality called slavery. It's one of the main ways we have done this. But here's a little news slide. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Think about this for a second. Human beings invented slavery, not God. Slavery is found in the Bible, but he didn't create it. He doesn't command it. Humans created it as an economic system. And this inhumane practice as it moves through the scriptures finally gets to a point where God's like, God speaks up. So in the second book of the Bible, the first one's Genesis, the next one's Exodus. Told you we're going to hit all 66, so I hope you didn't make any lunch plans. So in Exodus chapter 21, there's a whole chapter devoted to God speaking into the inhumane practice of human slavery to, to speak humanity type stuff into it. And right in the middle, Exodus 21 verse 16, God speaks up and he says this. God says, whoever kidnaps someone and sells him or is caught still holding him, must surely be what? Put to death. Whoa. What's going on here? Here's what's going on. Human beings made in the image of God are being taken and sold to other human beings in the image of God. What's God's response? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No. No. Anyone who does this will be guilty of a capital crime. Wow. So this is surprising. Here's why. This law in Exodus 21, verse 16, is a universal law. It applies to all people. Now, here's the interesting thing. This is what makes it so surprising. In the ancient world, 17 centuries before Christ, there was a a little, um, like a cylinder that was found, and it contains what's known as the Code of Hammurabi. And the Code of Hammurabi had about 200 plus laws that were given to govern a large region in the ancient world. And on the Code of Hammurabi is a law that looks just almost exactly like Genesis or Exodus 21, 16. That when you kidnap and sell a person, you should be killed. Here's the difference. The Code of Hammurabi says that you can't do that to rich people, but you can do it to poor people. In other words, if you got money, hey, whoa, don't be stealing these people and selling them. If If you're poor, it's like, who cares? That's what most of the world functioned like. And God speaks into that, and he's like, "Mm -mm, no. In fact, if you just go a little further, in Exodus 21, verse 20, God condemns those who have someone under their servitude who abuses them. You abuse them, God's going to deal with you. 
Now, it's so tragic that the Bible has been used in the past to justify the transatlantic slave trade of African peoples. It's such a tragedy because the Bible clearly, God clearly condemns reducing his image bearers to inferiority or, or captivity. We see it in Exodus 21, but we also see it in the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, Paul lists what he calls godlessness. It's a bunch of horrible things. And right at the end, 1 Timothy 1, 10, he lists enslavers. Literally in the Greek, it's man-takers. Someone who takes somebody and holds them captive. So anytime we see in the scripture God speaking about slavery, he's speaking into an existing situation created by humans to make it more humane. God doesn't just speak to the symptom, though, of enslavement. He actually speaks to the root causes that drive it. So from the early prophets in biblical history all the way through the latter prophets, God speaks out against the impulse that results in human trafficking. The, one of the very last of the latter prophets is the prophet Zechariah. Second to last of the latter prophets, Zechariah said these things. This is what God says. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice and show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Notice God gives his people, he, he, he gives them a do and a don't. Do administer true justice. Show compassion and mercy. Do not, don't oppress other people. The word oppress in the Hebrew literally means to push down. It actually means to crush. We get our concept of downtrodden from this word. Who are we supposed to not crush but actually show mercy and compassion and justice to? Four types of people listed here. In fact, the theologians have come to refer to this list as the quartet of the vulnerable from Zechariah 7, verse 10. This is the four kinds of people. You got the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the poor. Quartet of the vulnerable. What do these have in common? Well, first of all, they're at the bottom of society, not at the top. Second of all, they have no legal standing. They got nothing. There's nothing they can say or do. They have no voice. Thirdly, they have no power. Fourth, they have no one. Fifth, they have nothing. And sixth, they become vulnerable to exploitation and injustice. So all throughout the scriptures, from the Old Testament law, the prophets, and even on into the writings, we see God speaking with one voice, repeatedly calling his people to protect and to care for the quartet of the vulnerable. How would this play out today? Let me give you a couple examples. Let me give you a couple examples. Um, years ago, when we lived in North Texas, my wife Rose worked for the county government doing vaccines. And a woman came in who was a Nigerian woman, and she came in to get a vaccine for her daughter. They were both undocumented. I don't know about your immigration view. Doesn't matter. That's the reality. It's where she started. So Rose got to know her a little bit, found out they had just gotten to the country. They had nothing. They found an apartment that they barely squeaked into. They had no furniture. So we began a relationship with this woman we'll call Ruth and helped her get furniture and all kinds of things like that. Well, the more we got to know her, we found out that Ruth had a job. She was working at a local gas station under the table. And the manager was paying her very low pay for very long hours. She worked all the hours no one else wanted to work. And she barely had enough money to pay for childcare, so she couldn't even get 
groceries. It was a mess. And so when she started to complain to the boss, he told her this. If you do not work the hours that I give you, at the pay that I give you, I will turn you in. If you try to quit this job, I will turn you in. If you leave this area and try to run away, I will turn you in. Then he began to make specific advances. And he said, if you don't this, that, and the other, I will turn you in. This is one of the ways these things play out, vulnerable. A couple other quick examples. How about a child that ages out of the foster care system? By the time they get to the end and they age out, they have nowhere to turn, no one to turn to. And they end up on their own, on the street, primed and ready for someone somewhere to exploit them. Here's a third example. How about a lonely girl on social media? Some dude trolling her. She doesn't even know. It's like, oh, you're a really pretty girl. I work for a modeling agency. You know, I could sell your pictures and you can get money. Here's some money for those pictures. Hey, how about some other pictures? Ooh, here's some more money. Hey, how about some sexier pictures? Hey, here's some more money. And sooner or later, she finds herself in a situation where pictures have been sent, money has been given, and now those pictures are being used against her to put, keep her in a situation. See how this plays out? See how this plays out? So what are we saying? Here's what we're saying. Vulnerability is at the root. Now, if you summarize the human trafficking research, like at last few weeks in studying this, I kept getting this overwhelming thought as I looked at the data, and here's, here's the thought. When people have nothing and no one, they become vulnerable to anyone offering anything. This is how it plays out. When people come to that place in life, they got nothing and no one, they become vulnerable which is why all through the scriptures, God calls his people to have a heart for the quartet of the vulnerable as he does. Some research has been done recently by uh, Dr. David Finkelhor. He's the director of the Crimes Against Children Research Center at the University of New Hampshire. And they study globally how these things kind of play out with children and exploitation and human trafficking. Here's a summary from Dr. Finkelhor. He said, most sex trafficking happens to high-risk young people. We could do a lot more to prevent trafficking by addressing those vulnerabilities like family abuse, neglect, foster care placement. So what are we saying? Here's what we're saying. If human trafficking is the fruit, vulnerability is the root. These next several weeks, we're going to be addressing a lot of those contributing factors. But a little over a century ago, Charles Spurgeon, the British preacher, said these words. It is easier to crush the egg than to deal with the full-blown cobra later on. Which would you rather fight, an egg or a cobra? I'll take the egg anytime. So when it comes to being a difference maker in human trafficking, there are two ends of the spectrum. One's kind of like the egg. The other's kind of like the cobra. The cobra end of it would be the restoration side of human trafficking. That's helping rescue and restore people who have already been and in being traumatized by human trafficking. That's on the restoration side, and that's great work. The other side is the prevention side, the egg side where we give our time and our attention to that quartet of vulnerable people, helping them find belonging, helping them just discover coping skills and ways of getting through this world and helping them discover God's purpose for their life. And when it comes to human trafficking, a lot of people do move toward restoration side. That's great, that's awesome. There are cobra fighters and that's amazing. 
but we need a lot of egg smashers too. And so to learn more about what that might look like, just go to our website, hcbc.com forward slash difference. You see the human trafficking tab. There's all kinds of great stuff there to learn. So we see it in the law and the prophets, but even in the writings. Proverbs 31 verse 8 and 9 says this, speak up for those who have no voice, for the justice of all who are dispossessed. Speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and the needy. Now, the data on human trafficking have spoken. There is a voice. Let me summarize it very quickly. Our own state of Texas is number two in the nation on reportable cases of human trafficking per year. About a year ago, there's about 313,000 cases reported in a year. It breaks down to about 75-25. 75% of reportable cases are labor trafficking, and about 25% are sex-related. Now, how does human trafficking play out in our state? It's often connected to massage parlors, spa parlors, uh, domestic workforces. It's connected to hotel and motel-based sex. It's connected to porn. Let's stop right there for a moment. Porn. Some of us, you need to just make the connection. Here's the connection. Every time you click on any porn, you are fueling the very industries that drive human trafficking on the sexual side. Because videos are valued based on the, the traffic that they get. Every time you click, you're adding value to it. You're like, yeah, bing, count me in. And you're supporting, you're funding, you're fueling Human trafficking, every time you click. In fact, every click on the other side of that click is a human being made in the image of God. In the world of economics, you have supply and demand. If you get rid of demand, supply goes away. So how does it play out in our state? So many different ways. You have trafficking plays out through restaurant and food service labor plays out through nursing home staffing, plays out through construction site labor, plays out through farm and agricultural labor. It's all these different ways. At the bottom line of it, though, modern slavery meets our demand. Our demand for cheap labor, cheap goods, cheap products, cheap food, and cheap sex. The bottom line, friends, is that the need for money factors heavily in human trafficking. So what are we saying? Here's what we're saying. Vulnerability is the pool where human traffickers fish. That's the pool. So as we move through the biblical narrative, we see that everyone has infinite worth as God's image bearer. No one is to be reduced to inferior or captive to another. And then the third statement right here is that anyone can be liberated and transformed by Jesus. Any one. So here's a question. What do you think Jesus came to earth to accomplish? Start another religion? I mean, like we needed another one of those? Um, teach people better ideas about God as if information or education were just the goal? Um, did he come to earth just to provide a golden ticket to an upgraded afterlife for some? Jesus' first recorded words when he launched his public ministry address this question. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes into his hometown synagogue of Nazareth, and he picks up the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, and he reads Isaiah 61, 
We see it right here in Luke chapter four, verse 18 and 19. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the regaining of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Notice the peoples that have his attention, have his heart. Do you notice them? Poor, captives, blind, and oppressed. These are people in need of a liberator, and Jesus is the liberator. His mission statement could really be summed up in three words, release the captives. Jesus not only saves sinners from the hell to come, but he also saves us from the hell of living as commodities, objects, and captives to others who would exploit us for profit or pleasure. So Jesus not only saves us from sin, he also sets captives free from all forms of oppression. So we're going to share very quickly just a couple of stories of how Jesus is the liberator. He's still setting people free. Who's the girl? Just want to respect. Who's the girl? Her innocence she must protect. Who's the girl? So aware yet so confused. You can't trust in her because she won't trust in you. Who's the girl? Lost, yet so found. Who's the girl? Stuck in the same world with different faces. Who's the girl? Looking for love in all the wrong places. Who's the girl? Searching for something that's worth searching for. Some people say it's respect. This girl will forgive, but she just can't forget. Who's the girl? Two people in one, one person in two. This girl has been misled into believing the lies are true. Who's the girl? Soft, but acting tough, only to avoid the struggle she's just been through enough. Who's the girl? That even when she's stuck, it doesn't matter what, Cause she won't give up. Who's the girl? Someday, one day, will break free. Who is this girl? That girl? She's me. My name is Ashley Chapman, and I uh, spend my days trying to make our world a better place for children who are in desperate need. And. That calling was laid on my life from the Lord when I was a child. A woman came to my parents and said that she was being beaten along with her three children. Could she come into our home? But the first night that she was there, I saw her beat her own children. So we kept uh, the eight, five, and two-year-old. The two-year-old had already been sexually assaulted. Five-year-old was mute from the trauma. The eight-year-old was deaf from being hit repeatedly. And it was awful. Um, So during that six months, Uh, What was going on was I was watching the instability and the trauma that these children were going through, even though they were in a safe environment at this moment in their life. I was watching my parents fight a system that was broken, um, our foster care system and the judicial system, and trying desperately to keep these children from being lost in the cracks or going back to that family. And and then I'm seeing uh, the scripture and God's heart for the oppressed and the orphaned and the fatherless. And... All of that six months later, uh, he miraculously provided a way for them to be adopted into a Christian family and never have to go back to uh, 
those parents. And I knew then that uh, I, I just went to my parents after that and said, the Lord's called me to be an advocate on behalf of children the rest of my life. So that was the start of the journey for me. When we talk about human trafficking, we're not talking about a topic or a subject. We're talking about human beings who are made in the image of God. And Jesus is the true liberator. Malcolm Muggeridge was a survivor of some of the horrific elements of World War II. He was deeply traumatized. And later in his life, he came to personal faith in Christ. I want you to see what uh, Muggeridge has to say. He said, all other freedoms, once won, soon turn into a new servitude. Christ is the only liberator whose liberation lasts forever. Friends, Jesus is the difference maker, and he's calling you and me to be difference makers with him, to let him do it through us. So what can we do? Like, what can we do with such a big problem? Well, I think there are three things that we can do. First of all, we can learn. We can learn. Just go to hcbc.com forward slash difference and you'll see the human trafficking tab. And there are all kinds of great resources and partnerships that we have that you can learn more. You can learn more about what's really going on. And the second thing is pray. Ask God to show you, God, what do you want me to do? He hears the cries. He sees the need. God, help me to hear you. Help me to see what you want me to do. And he will guide you. And then thirdly, engage. Engage. So if you're a student, Engage that student on the margins that nobody seems to care about. Engage the people on the edges, wherever vulnerability looks like around you. Begin to engage. Maybe even get in a small group and wrestle with some of these things so that God might be able to use you guys together to make a difference. Don't need to be a big person doing big things. We just need a big God. And Jesus is the liberator. Now here's the good news. One day Jesus Christ will return. And he will liberate every single captive once and for all. And in the Bible, Revelation eleven fifteen says of that day, that then the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Revelation 21, 1 through 5 goes on and says that Jesus will make a new heaven and a new earth. And the former things will pass away. No more sorrow, no more death, no more pain, no more mourning. And the one seated on the throne, Jesus Christ says, Behold, I am making all things new. As the people of Jesus, we are to live as an echo of that future into today's reality. Will you? Will I? When you get to the last chapter of the Bible, the final chapter and the final scene in the biblical storyline shows us what we need to be doing and are called to do between now and that day. Revelation 22 and verse 17 says this. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life come. What's happening here? We see a partnership between the bride, which is the church. The bride joins the spirit in one voice, calling any and all people to come. Come where? Come to Jesus, the water of life, the true healer, the true redeemer, the true liberator. In Florence, Italy, there's a museum 
of Michelangelo's less famous sculptures. It's filled with a bunch of incomplete sculptures that look like people trying to break out of marble. Let me show you a picture of one right here. See, this person is kind of like trapped in the marble. It's trying to break out. Michelangelo referred to these sculptures as captives. Why? Well, because on their own, they were unable to break free from what was keeping them captive. They were unable to become what they were meant to be because they were captive. So Michelangelo viewed his job of knocking away everything that keeps them captive from becoming what they were meant to be. What a great image of Jesus Christ who came to set the captives free. And he wants to use you and me to knock away everything that keeps people captive from becoming what they were meant to be through Jesus Christ. The question is, will we join him? Will I be a difference maker or will I be a difference faker? Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of bearing your image. Like It is an honor to look in the mirror and say, I don't feel like, but I bear the image of the creator. Thank you, Lord, for unending worth, unending value, unending purpose. But truth be told, God, we have to confess. So often we get caught up in our own success and we just don't see. All around our lives are people crying out and you hear and your heart is moved. And our prayer today is, would you open our ears to the cries, open our eyes to the vulnerable peoples in this world who are being held captive so that we might join you in your work of releasing captives and setting them free to become what they were meant to be. And you send us out in your power to join your work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. And amen. Thanks. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To hear other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at hcbc.com. And again, thanks for listening to the Hill Country Bible Church Podcast.